So we'll be here in Hebrews 10 today looking, as is fitting on Easter, to look at the finished work of Jesus Christ. We talked on, uh, some, of us, some of us were at um, Hope Baptist Church on Friday for their Good Friday service, and we looked there in Hebrews chapter 9 at the work of the cross, and, and the cross that pays the price for our sin. But the work that Jesus did at the cross didn't end at the cross. It ended at the empty tomb. And we, give, we, we look today at the completed and finished work that Jesus did there and what it means for our life today. So look in Hebrews 10, and let's begin in verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily with offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Lord, we give you again the praise and the glory today. We thank you for the few minutes that we have to open your word today to see what it says because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would use it in our hearts today. Would you show us our sin and point us to the Savior? Would you show us how much you long to forgive the soul who would come to you? Or to those who know you, would you show show us how much you long to make us worthy servants of you, to fill us with the strength to follow you every day? Lord, most of all, we pray that we would not leave this place the same as when we came today, but we would leave different because we have heard the glorious truth of your word proclaimed today and you have applied it to our hearts. Lord, help me today to say only those things you would have me to say, not get in the way of what you would like to do here today. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever looked forward to something in your life with great anticipation? You know, maybe it was a, a new job, that you had lined up. Maybe it was a a house that that you were purchasing or a a family trip. Maybe it's a major life event or some other type of event or moment. I know in our home, we anticipate sometime in the next month or so welcoming our fourth child. And and let me tell you, there's somebody in our home who's anticipating that day very much so, okay? And these these things are are exciting. I mean, as, as the day gets closer, 
sometimes that weight, especially when you're younger, I always felt like as a kid, that weight's just excruciating, right? You just can't wait for it to whatever. Usually it's to be your birthday, right, kids? Now, have you ever waited for something with the same sort of anticipation, but maybe even greater anticipation because you didn't know when it was going to happen? You just kind of knew this was supposed to happen or this could happen or this would happen, but you didn't know when it would be. You spent countless minutes, hours, days, weeks, or even years waiting for that one thing to happen. And when it did, you just want to savor the moment for as long as you can because you waited so long for that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecies foretold for thousands of years. Ever since man first sinned in the Garden of Eden, there had been promises of a Messiah, of a deliverer from death, a victor over Satan and sin and everything that opposes God. All throughout the Old Testament, the work of this deliverer was foretold through countless sacrifices. For there would one day be one who could take away sin and not just cover it. And on the cross, Jesus won the victory. And at the resurrection, God vindicated the work of his son. And today, let us examine Christ's finished work. Because he lives, there is victory won, promises kept, and a calling to trust him and give our lives to him. Because Jesus finished redemption's work and claimed victory over sin and death, I must trust him for eternal life and commit myself to him in this temporal life to live for his glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has incredible implications. It has implications for your eternal soul. But it also has implications on this temporal life. Because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, you and I can not only live forever in eternity with heaven, in heaven for eternity with God, but you and I can also live in this life right here, right now, to the glory and praise of God. You and I can live a life of victory over our own struggles of sin, over our, our own feelings of guilt. Or, or loneliness, or whatever it may be that we battle with on a daily basis, Jesus Christ gives the victory. And we see that here in this passage today. The first thing that we see in verses 11 through 14 is that in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross, there is a decisive victory. Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. Verse 11 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see, under the Old Covenant and what we have recorded in the Old Testament, if you look especially in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, and you go specifically key in on Exodus and Leviticus and you read the law of God, under that covenant, the priest's work was a work that was never done. Because Day after day, they served in the tabernacle and temple. They did the work day in and day out. And and, and every day they got up, there was more to do. And what they did is they offered the same sacrifices over and over again for the people. 
When the people would sin, they would bring the sacrifices that required of that to cover their sin, to atone for their sin. And every year, the, priest, the high priest would go in and offer the, the, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of the nation. But these had to be done over and over again as God had ordained. And, and do you realize that in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were many pieces of furniture that God had ordained? We talked about that a little bit last week at some of the things that you find there. But you know what God did not ordain to be in the tabernacle? A chair. Why? The priest's work was never done. It doesn't matter how many, how many sacrifices he offered, his ministry was still ongoing. There was always a need for attention to something. Or in the sanctuary, there was always another Israelite to help. And no sacrifice in this system could ever remove sin. So there was always more to do. As one author said, the system, this system had no lack for priests, but it did lack effectiveness. Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection changed all of that. You see, the death of Jesus Christ wasn't just the next installment or the annual atonement. No, Christ was the final sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice. That's why it says in verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. At the right hand of God. Jesus, God's son and God himself, gave himself and sacrifice. And unlike the Mosaic priests, when he completed his work, he sat down. Because there was no more sacrifices to make. And he didn't just go anywhere. Where did he sit? The Bible tells us he sits at the right hand of God. That is the place of highest authority and greatest honor in heaven. His sacrifice was the final eternal payment. And so the final sacrifice in this decisive victory brings us the final victory. Because no lasting victory over sin and Satan was found in the Old Testament sacrifices. When were the sacrifices of the Old Testament offered? They were offered after sin to pay the price to cover that sin. They could not offer to the, to the sacrifice or to the worshiper true heart change. There was nothing about that sheep or that ox or that bird or that goat that could change the heart of any person. It was simply paying the price for the sin that that, that individual had committed. But Jesus came to give lasting victory and change the hearts of men. Jesus' death and resurrection claimed victory over Satan. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He claimed victory over Satan's forces of evil and over any man who would stand against him. Colossians 2, 14 and 15, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Jesus not only claimed victory over sin 
and over Satan and over all who would oppose him. He also claimed victory over death itself in his resurrection as he offers eternal life. As 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and 27 says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. All enemies of God are defeated by Jesus. He rules and reigns. And now he awaits the final ascent of all to his lordship. It says in verse 13, from that time that he sat down on the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. One day all enemies of, of Christ will be made his footstool. They will be made to bow before him. And those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord before the day of judgment will do so one day. But rest assured, that's already settled. The end is already coming. The end is already set. And if you do not bow before the Lord Jesus Christ today, one day you will. And those who oppose him and continue the, the work of sin will one day kneel at the feet of Jesus Christ. Satan, his forces of evil, and mankind can resist him all they want. But Jesus has already claimed the final victory. And to those who accept him as Savior and, and find their, their hope in him, he has delivered to them this final perfection. Not only is he the, the final sacrifice who, who, who claims the final victory, but we see the final perfection in verse 14, for one, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in him your sins are removed forever. You bear no guilt for those any longer. Instead, your entire record is changed forever. You are what we usually call the word justified, which means declared righteous before God. That when God looks at you, he sees not your sin, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. And those who know Christ are being sanctified by him every day. They, are being, they have been, these are those who have been perfected forever in him and are being changed more and more to be like him. But it begins with that changed status as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. In Jesus, you can be dead unto sin in living for the glory of God. And in this, Jesus not only delivers this, this decisive victory, but he delivers on the promises that were made all throughout the Old Testament. And we see, as the writer continues in Hebrews, the promises that Jesus delivers to all those who are in him. We find these in verses 15 through 18. And what we find, first of all, is an internalized truth that comes from a relationship with God. In Christ's death and resurrection, the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, are fulfilled. It says, but the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us for after. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. In Jesus and, and through the Holy Spirit, these promises are testified to as true in the life of every believer. 
What is that first? Well, first, the truth of God's law is internalized on the hearts of all who trust in him. In the Old Covenant, God's law was very external. And if you've read any of the Old Testament, if you've gone through even just the Ten Commandments or you started to go through the law of God, you find there's a lot of external things, right? There's a lot of sacrifices that has to be done. There's a lot of do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. It gets pretty tedious, doesn't it? There's a lot of outward things that had to be done. These reminders of things, the reminders are very external. Quite literally, they were external because quite literally, the Ten Commandments were written on stone by God. There were those who were devout Jews who bound them on their wrists and on their foreheads. But in Jesus Christ, that external law is internalized. That no longer are they outside law imposed on unchanged hearts. We are remade in Jesus Christ and he writes these things in our hearts and lives. And when you, be, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it should be little wonder to you that you long to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. That is what changed lives look like. We are changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, on this side of eternity, we can't reach that imperfection. But there should be a desire in the heart of every person who knows Jesus Christ to, to be more and more like him, to love the things of God, to, to be with God. He is in his own, making us more like himself. And when you feel conviction over sin, That is the work of God internally in your heart. He is not using the the outward physical law, you know, to to take us and and, and bash us over the head, right? But he has internalized the very truth of that into our lives. He is rewriting the things of our heart to make us more and more godly. The physical law and the things that are refined in the Old Testament, they, they may not apply, so to speak, but... The God of the physical law is still the same and still continues to cultivate holiness in his own. That's why you don't look at the Old Testament and say, well, forget all that now, right? Because that God who wrote that is still the same God. And he still internalizes these truths on our hearts and our lives. But not only is the truth internalized, but the sin of our lives is inapplicable. We see that in verse 17 where he continues and it says, but then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you come to him, your sin is gone forever. God chooses to remember your sin no more because of Jesus Christ. And this is where, you know, just, just personally we can confront head on this whole idea of forgive and forget. Because I'm going to tell you right now, God the omnipotent forgets nothing. But in Jesus Christ, he chooses not to remember your sin. And that is where true forgiveness is. He does not hold it to your account. Your fellowship, you, you are truly free of your eternal guilt and condemnation. Now, 
Your fellowship with God will be hindered if you continue to entertain sin in your life, but nothing can remove you from God's family. There are no more offerings. There are no more days of atonement. Just peace with God through Jesus. The old covenant predicted and pointed ahead to salvation and is now fulfilled in what Jesus has done. And that is why we celebrate today. He has died and risen again to make us new in him. You see, you and I are born with a problem. Now, some of us in here, myself, we have lots of problems, okay? But at our core, in our being, we have a sin problem. We have a problem with doing what is wrong. We, in and of ourselves, cannot live in a way that would honor and please our holy and just creator, And all of us are accountable before the God who created us. And because we are lost in our sin and because we cannot reach God on our own, that is why he sent Jesus. Who lived a perfect life as God, the Son of God. Who died on that cross so freely for our sin. Who was buried and rose again and now offers you eternal life in him. And if you die, if you and I die in the state of not knowing him, we will spend eternity separated from him, paying the punishment of our sin. But you can have new life. You can have forgiveness. And you can have eternal life in heaven with God, but that comes only by faith, by truly trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work. He offers his righteousness for your sinfulness. He took your place, and all you must do is receive this gift. And if you do, he gives you the ability in him to live out a new life in him on this earth. And that's where we see that that because of the decisive victory that Jesus Christ won, because he delivered the promises of old to those who trust in him, we see in the rest of this passage the dedicated lives to him that we are to have. In verses 19 through 25, the author talks about all of these things because of our standing before God. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Very simply, there is a new standing for all of those who are in Christ before God. Because of Jesus, we have a new attitude for coming into the presence of God. We need not stand outside and hope that he will accept us. We need no penance. We need no gifts to go in ahead of us. We need no religious leader to intercede on our behalf. But you and I, because of Jesus Christ, can enter boldly into the presence of God. You can stand before him and you can have a relationship with him. You and I have confidence to come to God because of the new and living way that is set before us. That word new is a very interesting word here in the New Testament. That word for new literally means freshly slain. And it talks about the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. Jesus is the new and eternal sacrifice to God on our behalf. And he is the living way because in him we live. We are acceptable in God's sight forever. 
our standing before God is secured. He is our high priest who takes us to God. Every year, into the Old Covenant, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go through the veil. There was a veil in the tabernacle that separated the the holy place from the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where where the blood was offered once a year on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of the nation. And only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go into that presence once a year. But Jesus Christ takes us as our high priest into the presence of God. Because of him, we can stand boldly before God. We are acceptable in God's sight. And our standing is not in jeopardy. The torn flesh of Jesus Christ is our access, just as the veil in the temple was torn at his death, opening the Holy of Holies. And with this standing before God secured, we have a new calling to live lives dedicated to God. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the author says, here is what is expected of those who follow him. Here is what you are empowered in him to do. First, in verse 22, we are called to be near, to draw near to God. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our bodies washed, or sorry, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus Christ, let us draw near to God with a true and sincere heart. Do you realize that the answer to drawing close to God is not in religion? Religion is a mask that covers up the sinfulness of man. It is through religion that we try to satiate our consciences and we make ourselves acceptable, so to speak. But religion will never truly make you close to God. No, what we're, not ta- we're not talking about a religion. We're talking about the only way to, a tr- to true closeness with God is through his cleansing work that gives us a relationship with God. And if we genuinely commit our lives and our souls to God in Christ, then you and I can draw near to him in confidence, knowing that we will be accepted in him. It's hard to get close to someone when you think they may not like you very much. You ever had that experience, right? It's hard to cultivate a relationship when you're not really sure where you stand, If you know Jesus Christ, you know exactly where you stand with God. He wants you to draw near to him. He has done all we need to have our hearts cleansed of sin. He has given himself to bring this about. And our heart need not condemn us in Christ. Because at salvation, the penalty of our sin was placed on him. And in him, we can draw near to God. And the work of the Holy Spirit then begins to change us to be like him. And in order to draw near to God, in order to be too close to him, we must be like him. We must grow in him. And if we are to come sincerely to God, we must daily seek this growth in him. This is the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And if you and I are not walking with him, 
that it's little wonder we feel very far away from him. If you and I have claimed to, to, to come to, to God through Jesus Christ and we continue to, to entertain sin in our lives and continue to engage in that and continue to, to keep God at an arm's length, it's no wonder you feel far away from God. Because you truly have not allowed the gospel to change your life. And you begin to wonder, am I, do I even know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we don't see the change in our lives. But God wants us in him to draw near to him. He also wants us in verse 23, not only to draw near to him, but to hold fast to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You realize that when it comes to salvation, it is God's responsibility to save us. He is the only one who can cleanse us and give us new life. He alone can draw us to himself. He alone can convict us of sin. If you have ever felt convicted because of your sin, it is not because some person on this earth has convicted you of your sin. We must share the gospel and trust God to do his work. Because it is not my responsibility to save myself from sin, but it is my responsibility to take hold of God in hope. And if you do that, if you respond to the conviction of God with faith and total trust in him, you can hold firmly on to that expectation. That's what it says here in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And the word hope there isn't like, well, I hope it gets sunny around here soon. No, the word hope there is an, is an expectation of looking ahead. We hold fast to that expectation that, uh, of eternity with God and of a changed life in him. It is an unbending and firm hope that doesn't waver. The difference between one who knows they're truly one of God's children and one who doesn't is what they're holding on to. My friend, if you're holding on to your words and your works, then you're going to have no true hope in God. If you're holding on to a priest or a pastor or someone else's word to declare you righteous before God, then you're going to find no true stability. Only in the confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior can you find that hope. If that is your hope and stay, then you are sure and secure in him. If that is your confidence, you will find the burden and power from him within your heart to live for him in his strength. For God has not saved us that we can live to ourselves, but for him in service to others, to his praise and glory. And we see that in the last two things, that that not only are we called to be near to God in him, are we called to, to hold fast to God in him, but we are called to... First of all, to do loving works for God in his power. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Life in God is not a call to live in a vacuum. And so, the writer of Hebrews closes with these last two exhortations. The children of God are called to stir up one another. That's a very, another very interesting word. The word stir up there means to provoke or stimulate one another. And normally, we would think of provoke as a very bad thing, right? 
We have uh, three, cho- three young children in our home, and let me tell you, the older two do a good job of provoking one another, okay? Uh, sorry, Dad's going to tell on you for a second, all right? You've got to be careful as a pastor telling things about your kids, right? And we all know what that's like, right? To have someone who, maybe they just push your buttons a little bit. That's not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about the other side of that, right? Of provoking someone to do something good, of stimulating them to good things. We are called to encourage one another in love and good works. The Christian life isn't a call to sit on the sideline. The Christian life is a call to action. It is a call to be like Christ in what we do, not just in what we say or think. We are called to act in love towards others, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It isn't enough for you just to say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian. Do something with it for the glory of God and through his strength. Show the self-sacrificial love of God towards others, doing good things for them for the glory of God. Walk through life with the mindset of your Savior. He loved and he served all those you came in contact with. Read the Gospels and see what, God, what Jesus did for all those you came in contact with. And, and let your, your heart and mind be drawn to the end of each Gospel account where ultimately he paid the price for sin for all who would come to him. Your love and good works towards others, they don't just exist by themselves. You know what happens when Christians begin to to stir up one another in love and good works? It breeds more of the same. It begins to, to create this atmosphere of community, which we'll look at here in just a minute. But this should be seen, it's really easy for us to say, well, yeah, we should be doing that in our church. You know where it starts, Christian? It starts in your home. Stirring up one another to love and good works. And I know that's the hardest place to do it, right? To look around and say, I'm supposed to self-sacrificially love these? Yes. Yes, even the brother who pounds you over the head, okay? To love them with the same love of Jesus Christ. To stir up in them good works. Parents, we begin that by how we treat our spouse. Grandparents, we show that to our grandchildren. Right? It's generation after generation stirring one another up. We see it in our homes, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, our churches, and wherever God's people are found. And if we're going to create a community of God's people, we have to then be with God's people. And that's what the writer says here at the end. He says, not only do you stir up one of them to love and good works, but verse 25, assemble with the people of God. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. The assembling of God's people is vital for God's work. Upon his departure from this earth, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he established the church. And it is the expectation of believers from the word of God, from God himself, that they would adjoin themselves to a local manifestation of his true church. The writer of Hebrews alludes here to some who have no interest in doing this. They are content without community. They are content without accountability. But we need this community. We need this accountability of the relationships with other Christians in our lives. And in a commitless, a commitmentless culture, we are called to a different way of living. 
followers of Jesus Christ are called to unite with one another. We are called to minister to one another, to minister with one another, all for the glory of God. And you cannot do that with an apathetic consumer mentality towards the things of God. The things of God are not pick and choose what I think are great. The things of God are what does the word of God say and that's what we'll do. And if, you're not give, if you've given your eternal state to the Lord, then may we give him our temporal state as well. Make yourself involved in his work. We are to be exhorting one another, the writer says, and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's a very interesting reference. What is the day? Well, the day here is that is the return of the Lord. One day, Jesus, who has risen again and gone to heaven, will return for his own. The question is, will he come to find you obediently following him and his strength? Or picking and choosing what you think is acceptable for your life. Christ has done extraordinary things for us. And he calls us to do extraordinary things for him in his strength and with his people. Because Jesus finished redemption's work and claimed victory over sin and death. I must trust him for eternal life and commit myself to him in this temporal life to live for his glory. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of man's desire to be right with God, to live for eternity and to feel whole in this life. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that hope was deferred, that hope was deferred, that sin was covered, it was atoned for, it was but not so in Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope, there is no life, and there is no peace. He is the promised Messiah, the deliverer from sin, and he has paid the price for you. He has decisively defeated sin and death and delivered to us the promises of a new and eternal life. And today, he calls to you. He stands ready to forgive you of your sin, to give you hope for eternity, and to help you live for his glory. Have you sought peace and failed to find it? Have you filled your life with pursuits that have left you empty? Have you ever wondered what it was you were missing to settle your soul? It is Jesus, risen and conquering for you. And today, you can know him as your own. And if you do, he has called for your dedication to his claim on your life. You are his own, bought with his blood, raised to newness of life in him. Will you boldly and passionately draw near to him holding fast to your hope and acting in his strength towards others, stirring them up in love and good works. To do that, you have to be present in the lives of others, joining in with them as part of God's people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. 
It gives us hope, peace, and life eternal. It allows us to live for God's glory and with his help every day. Christ's finished work is the most amazing work indeed. And I invite you today, in just a few minutes we're going to pray, and I invite you today if you sit here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you say, I don't, I don't even know what it means exactly to have a relationship with God, I would, I would implore you, I would ask you to come and get that settled today. When we're done and we dismiss the service, I'll be here. I'm going to stay right up here up front after the service today. And if you need to connect about anything, I'd love to take a minute and speak with you. If it's about your eternal state, I'd love to take you to the scriptures and show you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with God. If you're a Christian and you're here and there's something in your life that you're struggling with, you'd like to pray with someone or you'd like to to seek some answers from the scripture, please come. I'd love the opportunity again to, to just walk through that with you and show you the hope of Jesus Christ and what he offers to you. Because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Hope for eternity and hope in this present life. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ gives us the victory. We thank you that we can access your presence, not timidly, not hopefully, but boldly because of him. We thank you for your work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray today that you would use your word in our hearts. That you would do that which no one else can do. That you would show us our sin and show us our Savior. That you would point us to forgiveness. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today wrestling with these things even in their own heart. That you would give them the courage and the boldness and that you would unsettle them so much that they must seek the truth of God's word. Lord, may you show them the hope of the gospel. Lord, we pray for believers today. There are many here in this room who profess to know you as Savior. Lord, I ask that you would use your word in our hearts today to show us how much you long to be near us, that you want us to hold fast to you and to live for you among God's people. Lord, would you show us what we need to change so that we can be nearer, still nearer to you every day. May we go out of here today truly pondering and wondering at the resurrection. And may we go forth from here with new vigor and life to do the things you have called us to do. Be with us now the rest of this day. May we honor you and glorify you in all that's said and done. In your name we pray. Amen.